Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Pretty good. Not as rested as I thought I was going to be, given that it's a off week for the court. A lot happening. There have been some orders, a rare midweek opinion day. Uh, so, so we'll be getting into that later this episode. That's right. Yeah, the uh, the Supreme Court during its midwinter recess announced that it was going to be announcing opinions on Wednesday, and they were turned out to be pretty interesting, I would say. Yes, that's right. One of them was that case we've been talking about uh, involving the Nazi art. So just a little bit of background. This was the case from heirs of Jewish-German art collectors who were suing Germany for $250 million. They say that the art collectors were essentially forced to sell um, a treasured, a medieval Christian art collection to the Nazi government um, for basically a third of its value. And so now they're trying to get that money back. But the Supreme Court, in a unanimous ruling, said that the heirs could not sue under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Yeah, it was definitely a long shot case for the heirs to try to use the U.S. court system to get their remedies. Um, But it was an interesting case. I know a lot of folks were watching to see if, you know, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act could potentially cover this. I, I think I was a little taken that, you know, it was such a unanimous decision that indeed it's not. Yeah. So this one had to do with whether the plaintiffs in this case could essentially uh, bring claims under an exception for the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Because the FSIA, what it does is it basically says when plaintiffs can use the U.S. courts to sue foreign governments. And there are various exceptions um, to when immunity does not apply. And the plaintiffs had tried to use one exception for essentially expropriation, um, saying that this property was expropriated in violation of international law. And they said that that international law was the law against genocide. And uh, the Supreme Court kind of read things very differently. They said that, you know, the FSIA provides an exception for expropriations, but that that's only really illegal when it is another foreign national, when it's a government kind of taking property from another foreign national. Um, whereas if a government is taking property from its own citizens, its own nationals, then that falls under this kind of old doctrine called the domestic takings rule, which basically says that that's a domestic affair and that's not uh, subject to the international legal agreements that um, these countries are a part of. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion for the court and had kind of an interesting line that I thought was pretty telling about this. And he says, As a nation, we would be surprised and might even initiate reciprocal action if a court in Germany adjudicated claims by Americans that they were entitled to hundreds of millions of dollars because of human rights violations committed by the U.S. government years ago. So I think you're right in saying that it was a bit of a long shot to see whether they could bring this case under the FSIA in court. Now, the Supreme Court did leave some avenues open for um, the plaintiffs to further pursue other claims in the lower court, and they sent it back. But for the most part, the main avenue that they were pursuing to get remedies for, you know, what they say was the compelled sale of the Welfenschatz or the Gulf treasure, which is what this medieval Christian art collection is known as, um, that, you know, it's going to be probably pretty difficult in the courts going forward for them. Now, if I remember correctly, when this was argued, it was argued with another similar case against Hungary that uh, I remember we spoke about and we thought might have a bit of a better chance than the German case. 
Yeah, that's right. It was interesting. This, the court did not actually write an opinion associated with the Hungary case. Instead, vacating and remanding and sending it back down to the um, the Court of Appeals in light of its decision in the Germany case. And if I recall correctly, the Hungary case had more to do um, with these principles of international comedy, um, you know, harmony between the different nations. And I don't think the court really delved too much into those issues. So that case will continue to go forward. But, you know, the, these Nazi art cases have been percolating in the in the U.S. court system for years now. I mean, obviously, it was a huge um, crime that the Nazi regime had committed in pilfering these hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, very high art through the years that they were in power. And so, you know, getting adequate compensation so many years down the road has been kind of a struggle for the courts to figure out. And in fact, the Supreme Court has weighed in on, on this issue before. That's right. Back in 2004, I believe, there was a, a bit of a similar case uh, involving uh, Nazis art theft that was known as Republic of Austria versus Altman. Uh, fun fact, actually, the subject of a 2015 film uh, called Woman in Gold. I have to see this one. It's on my watch list. I watched the um, trailer, actually, uh, and it looks pretty good. Helen Mirren stars as, uh, you know, the main protagonist. She's an elderly Jewish woman who sues Austria to reclaim a famous painting of her aunt that was stolen by the Nazis with the help of her lawyer, of course, Ryan Reynolds. Okay, now you've got my interest peaked. I think, I think I'm going to have to watch this talents. movie too. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Uh, we'll report back uh, whether yes. it was good or not. But it, it looked it, Now, it looked now pretty my good. question though is, who's playing the justices? You know, we'll have to find out. Um, I can't think of any um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg lookalikes in Hollywood at the moment, but maybe Kate McKinnon, although this would have been way before her time. Okay, we're, we're going to have to have like, uh, you know, a podcast movie night and get back to our listeners on, you know, just how good or not good this movie is. Definitely, definitely. So why don't we move on to the other opinion that was handed down on Wednesday in a case, in a rail workers uh, disability benefits case. This one I actually thought was pretty interesting. Okay, railroad workers benefits. Uh, I, I'm going to need some more. <laughs> okay, okay. So here's the deal. Uh, the Supreme Court basically in a five to four decision sides with this railroad worker who is suing to reopen his disability benefits case before the U.S. Railroad Retirement Board. And basically, the Supreme Court said that the Fifth Circuit was wrong when it said that courts lack jurisdiction when they're reviewing um, a retirement board's decision not to reopen a case. Now, if it, you still don't think it's interesting, it's interesting because of the lineup that the actual decision featured where you had... Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, joining with the three liberal justices on the court um, to form a five-justice majority over a four-justice dissent minority that featured Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So this was actually her first recorded dissent in her months on the Supreme Court so far. Do I have your attention now, Natalie? You do. You do. You don't <laughs> see that lineup often. Uh and we haven't heard that much from Justice Barrett. So so what did she say in her dissent? Well, she didn't actually write a dissent. Okay, so there's the catch. <laughs> so she, she joined Justice <laughs> Thomas's dissent. But, but it is the first time that she's, you know, publicly split from, I believe, I actually don't quote me on that, but I think it's her first time that she's split from uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh in a case. 
And it suggests that maybe this is going to be a familiar lineup we see going forward. I mean, I don't know. Can we really just tell that from just one case? So, of course, we can't. (laughs) But, you know, it's my job to kind of see trends at the Supreme Court. And I, you know, reached out to a couple of people who said that it's hard, it is indeed hard to make a generalization about this obscure railroad disability case that has to do with the text of the Railroad Retirement Act and its relationship with this other kind of analogous statute. However, some experts say that, you know, in tightly divided cases where the liberal faction is going to prevail at the Supreme Court, that this is going to be the alignment that we're likely going to see because, um, Roberts and Kavanaugh fall into kind of the middle spectrum of the Supreme Court's ideological balance. And so maybe we're going to start to see Barrett splintering off more towards the more conservative end of the Supreme Court, if you will. I mean, I can see where you're going. I can see the logic in that, obviously. Um, I guess I just struggle because we know so little about Justice Barrett in many ways. You know, her appellate court record is not super lengthy you know, that, that, you know, it, 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 that you can really provide a good analysis of where she exactly sits on the spectrum here. Um, and, you know, she's just been on the court a few months. And like you said, we haven't really heard from her that much. It's true. We, this is basically the first data point we have of Barrett as a Supreme Court justice, you know, showing any kind of ideological leanings on the court. Um, and we're going to, find out uh, as time goes on about where it is in the spectrum she falls you know people always kind of characterize the justices in the liberal camp or the conservative camp and those are really reductive and simplistic when you look at you know the different areas of law in which the justices have different judicial views for instance um we know now that justice uh neil gorsuch has a um particular set of views about Native American law cases where he is more inclined to, you know, read the words of old treaties between the U.S. government and, 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 and tribal governments, um, not, not just as favorable to the tribes, but, you know, really applying the original meaning of those treaties um, as they had when they were first written to cases in the 21st century. And that's just kind of one example as where maybe these molds of conservative and liberal don't really fit. And we're still going to find out more about Justice Barrett. Um, So I think you're right. It is way too early to generalize anything about this case. Um, But we're going to find out more, you know, with some of the big cases coming up. Two big cases um, are suddenly probably not going to be featuring um, some big decisions by the justices as there were some developments and in, in they were taken off of uh, the oral argument calendar. You want to dive into right. that, Natalie? That's right. On Wednesday, two big immigration cases uh, were taken off at the request of the Biden administration. Uh, so one was a suit that was challenging former President Donald Trump's diversion of $2.5 billion in defense funding for border wall construction. And that actually had been scheduled for later this month, February 22nd. Um, and the other suit that's been moved off the calendar uh, was challenging the policy forcing asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their immigration cases proceeded. And that one had also been scheduled for for in the next few weeks for March 1st. Um, Biden, though, on his first day in office, Inauguration Day, um, had actually put out orders freezing funding for the border wall and ending the program that forced asylum seekers to wait in Mexico. So, you know, big development there. I, I think 
I understand why <laughs> the the justices are like, okay, let's see, let's revisit right. this now. <laughs> you guys can have some more time. We'll we'll figure it out. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what this might mean for other cases down the road that might have similar um, policy shifts happening. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the big one obviously is the Affordable Care Act case where. Um, in November, when the case came up for oral arguments, the Trump administration took the position that the entire law should be invalidated, um, agreeing with a group of Republican states. This was about whether when Congress kind of eliminated the tax penalty associated with the individual mandate, it essentially rendered the individual mandate unconstitutional because it no longer had a, you know, its taxing authority. And then there was that separate question of whether, you know, if the, if the mandate's unconstitutional, then the whole law is unconstitutional as because of how instrumental it is to the functioning of the rest of the law. Which so that's I think is kind of the, the big question here, right? <laughs> right. The, the big question for this case is can it be carved out or do we toss right. the whole so law it's, out? Yeah, it's what we've been talking about is the severability question. Can you sever the mandate from the rest of the law? And the Trump administration said, no, you can't. The justices have to strike down the whole law. This was kind of widely seen as an extreme position for um, the government to take. The justices at oral arguments, not very sympathetic to that argument. They said that that's, that's a job for Congress, not necessarily the Supreme Court. So now we're waiting on a decision, and the Biden administration is now in charge of the Solicitor General's office. They've put in their acting Solicitor General and Elizabeth Prelogger, and they have a decision to make. Do they maintain that position on the briefs at the Supreme Court that the whole ACA, um, which was, you know, President Obama, Vice President Biden's landmark legislative achievement, um, that the whole ACA should fall? Or should they kind of um, rescind that position as they await for a decision? And it was kind of interesting. I heard, I tuned into a, a little speech or a little event, talking event um, from two former SGs, uh, Paul Clement and Neil Katyal. Clement was uh, SG under Bush too, Katyal uh, acting SG under Obama. And they basically said that, you know, uh, the Biden administration can and should change its position. So it seems like a simple decision. Although, as we've seen, even with these cases taken off the calendar, they haven't actually been mooted yet or dismissed. So I, I think we'll have a, a few more questions on all these cases to see just, you know, whether the, the justices will be like, okay, let's just, you know, toss them back out for now and and see what happens. So to to people who may not be as familiar with like how the Solicitor General's office works, the reason why it's kind of an interesting topic of conversation is because it rarely, it used to rarely happen where the administration would change its position in the Supreme Court from one, you know, president to the next. That was considered kind of, you know, not very cool because it's kind of destabilizing for the court's docket and, you know, the federal government wants to maintain positions for as long as possible, but there's kind of been some movement on that front. I mean, obviously the Trump administration, when it came in, changed positions from Obama and now Biden is under pressure to do the same from Trump. And I think one of the interesting points that Clement and Katyal made when speaking at, uh, on this virtual Georgetown event was that, you know, there are two like big con- factors that you should consider before you change position in the Supreme Court. And that is, you know, is the new position kind of in line with agency values? And, you know, one of the values of the office of the Solicitor General 
when it's representing the government before the Supreme Court is to try and save as much of a statute as possible, you know, to, to even if, if a reasonable argument can be made that a statute is constitutional, then you should make that argument. Um, also, second consideration, is your position likely to prevail in the Supreme Court? That should also be a factor. And Clement says, between those one and two factors, you know, the Biden administration probably should change its position. And this has become actually kind of a timely topic. Uh, another alumnus of the um, Solicitor General's office, Michael Dreben, uh, wrote a recent article in the Yale Law Journal basically saying that this whole practice of maintaining the OSG's position from one administration to the next um, should maybe be reconsidered and maybe um, the, the Solicitor General's office should be a little bit more open to switching positions and being honest with the court about what its views about a particular issue are. And he says that this whole star, uh, (laughs) they had kind of a funny name for it, but it was basically like agency starry decisis where like, you know, (laughs) the practice of precedent. We don't need need starry decisis to to expand. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Well, so he agrees with you and he says that, you know, um, it, it should just, it should be the priority um, of the Solicitor General's office when submitting positions to the Supreme Court that it do so for positions that it believes are right, even if they depart from prior submissions. It's kind of a timely topic for Supreme Court nerds. Which we are. Which so we yay. Are. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that just about does it for us this week, right, Jimmy? I believe that was all the big news for the week. Um, there are no oral arguments next week either. Um, so I, it's possible that we might get some more activity on the orders or opinions front, but we will be sure to let you guys know out there on our next episode. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter, Alyssa Aquino. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. And oh, please write us a review. Thanks for listening.